Hello, this is Mark Lieberman, and you're listening to The World According to Mark. Let me tell you a little bit about myself. I was a lawyer for 42 years, practicing in various types of uh, legal work, including prosecution with the Securities and Exchange Commission. And for the last uh, two years, or three, I think it is, I've been teaching constitutional law and government law at the University of North Carolina Asheville in their seniors program. So today I wanted to talk a bit about the Supreme Court, which has been in the news more often than I think in the last decade over the last couple of years, primarily because of the number of controversial cases which this current Supreme Court has decided uh, most of the justices on the Supreme Court are considered Republicans, conservative, right-wing, I would suggest. Um, that would be six of the justices, uh, three of whom were appointed by Donald Trump, the ex-president during his administration. And the liberal wing of the Supreme Court is really three justices. So what stripes you have, turns out, does have a lot to do with how cases are decided, primarily because the process of appointing a Supreme Court judge is one in which the president, first of all, has the power to make a nomination and the Senate confirms the nominee and the Senate having been controlled for the entire Trump administration by Republicans tended to put individuals on the court or approve Trump's nominee based upon their partisan beliefs. I don't think that's the only issue that would help explain some of what are characterized by many as controversial decisions, but it is a starting point for this analysis. Many have suggested that the conservative justices, because they have a 6-3 majority, are bending the law sharply rightward in a series of momentous decisions, many of which were decided in the last term, which ended in October of 2022, but also with the arguments and the oral arguments in cases that are currently on the court's docket in which the court has already heard oral arguments and will later render a decision. The cases that most frequently come to mind are the overturning of Roe v. Wade, the so-called, the case Roe v. Wade being the case that the Supreme Court decided nearly 50 years ago, which found that the right to an abortion was within the constitutional notion of privacy. And that's obviously a very simplistic notion, but the Roe v. Wade case, <clears throat> if it had been long anticipated, might be overturned if a case came back to the Supreme Court, again, almost 50 years later with the Dobbs decision. 
But abortion is on the short list of momentous and controversial decisions, but there's also been decisions on gun rights, environmental regulations, religious rights, and because of the nature of Supreme Court decisions and Supreme Court justices who hold their office except for extenuating circumstances, which we'll talk about later in the broadcast, have a, a life term. So I would say that in evaluating where the court has been and where it's going, we should note that the court has gone through many prior decades in which decisions were considered very liberal. And the Supreme Court made history with many momentous decisions regarding civil rights, voting rights, and the like. But in, again, the most recent term that ended last year, and now the term that is continuing through 2023, it is thought by some that the Supreme Court is overturning longstanding precedent, and in many cases, over, overturning longstanding precedent that is not supportive of the majority of citizens in the United States. But it's fair to point out that the justices are not elected to their office. As I said, they're appointed. So the extent to which the justices don't decide cases in accordance with any kind of vote or referendum, the courts can take notice of where popular opinion might be. And also they can take note of the consequences that might arise from some of their decisions, but they're certainly not bound to act in accordance with what pollsters say is the dominant feeling. Just by example, it would appear that the majority, according to most polls of the population in the United States is not in favor of outlawing abortion uh, totally. There are many gradations of where people sit on that particular issue, but if you look at the population as a whole, and if you look at the voting population as a whole, it would appear that there is a significant majority of folks that would allow abortions to be had um, more or less along the terms that were illustrated in the Roe v. Wade case, which I said was overturned by Dobbs, and in a case following Roe v. Wade called Casey, where there was some moderation and some rules put forth, but those are also not the rule of the land. Now, in talking about abortion, just to sit on that for a moment, while the Supreme Court overruled Roe v. Wade, which basically held that the right of reproductive freedom or the right to have an abortion was ensured by the Constitution, even though, of course, the Constitution does not mention or speak to abortion per se, that the court is not, by its judgment, saying that abortion should be outlawed totally. It left it up to the states to decide on a state-by-state -state basis through their individual state legislatures and through their 
court system, including their, the Supreme Court of the 50 states to make those determinations. But as a result of the Dobbs case, many states have decided to either retroactively reinstate laws that outlawed um, abortion, except in certain exceptional circumstances and sometimes with no exceptional circumstances. Other states have tried to bolster the right to have an abortion within the state, but because we're a country and not individual states, there are all kinds of machinations that have resulted just in the number of months that have passed since the Dobb case, Dobbs case, which overruled Roe, which is to say <clears throat> that the states that do not have uh, any real uh, opportunities for abortion, again, under some, in some cases, after a certain number of weeks, in some cases, except for uh, pregnancy caused by incest or rape, or maybe none of those restrictions apply, but people have the ability in this country to move from state to state if they feel that uh, their ability to make the determination about whether to have abortion would be honored in another state. But now we're seeing <clears throat> that many states are trying to figure out ways to prevent that from happening uh, if the resident of that is seeking the abortion is a resident of the state that either highly restricts or prohibits abortions. So we can see in, in, the, in that case alone, there has been um, a tremendous amount of adjustment that has had to be made. And there are as many, if not more people that are unhappy about the Dobbs decision. But I don't wanna talk just about a specific case. Again, I mentioned that there are other areas in which the Supreme Court has acted and held in those cases that whatever the prior understanding was based upon uh, earlier Supreme Court decisions that this court has the right in certain cases to overturn those past decisions. And we're living with that. And I think it's fair to say, regardless of which side of the spectrum you may be on, the court has made a rightward shift on many um, liberties and many freedoms that people had come to expect based upon earlier cases decided by the Supreme Court. So we're gonna try to figure out why that is. I mean, we'll ask the question, is that true? If so, why is that? What is it that um, we expect to happen over the course of time with respect to a lot of other de decisions that were considered to be uh, precedent and would not be subject to being overturned. So let's talk about that for, at, at first, at least at, at this point. First of all, people that study the Supreme Court understand in general where the Supreme Court gets its power but I'd like to go into that a bit so we have a, a clear understanding of how it was intended to work, how the Supreme Court was intended to work, the scope of its jurisdictional powers. And then we can comment on where we think, again, the court either is following a logical and understandable way of 
deciding new cases or whether the court, as many have said, has gone too far. First of all, the Supreme Court is mentioned in the Constitution as, in effect, the Supreme Court of the land, meaning it is the tribunal that will decide for the entire country what is the constitutional basis for various controversies that are brought to the Supreme Court. For the most part, Supreme Court hears the vast majority of its cases on appeal, either an appeal from a lower federal court, a court of appeals in the federal system, or it decides cases based upon an appeal from the highest state court, most of which are called state Supreme Courts in some jurisdictions, they refer to them in other ways. So the court has powers that are vested in it by the, by the articles in the constitution that lay out what responsibilities are of the Supreme Court. But it turns out there's very little in the constitution which really describes how the court system is supposed to operate and which defines the parameters of the Supreme Court. So the first case that I think we need to talk about that gave some additional substance to the role of the Supreme Court actually occurred many years after the Constitution. And that was the case of Marbury versus Madison, which most people, even lawyers, have at least heard of. And this was a case that was decided by uh, the majority of the court with Justice John Marshall presiding and writing the majority opinion. That case has substantial significance in terms of understanding how the Supreme Court has operated. And that case stood for a number of things, but specifically it created, or at least said that the Constitution gave it the power to create the idea of judicial review. Well, what does judicial review mean? Judicial review, as it turns out, gives the court the right to decide whether other statutes, whether statutes in general, either on the federal level or on the state level, are constitutional. In other words, the court gets to look at a statute enacted in Oregon or Iowa or even by Congress itself and say, you may have enacted a law that you thought was viable and enforceable, but we're hearing a case regarding the enforcement or attacking that particular statute. And we, the Supreme Court, have decided that that statute or that provision of the statute, which is in the controversy of the case, is unconstitutional. So even though you may, you litigants may have proved your case, you plaintiffs may have proved your case in a lower court, we get to say whether or not the statute was defective because it wasn't in keeping with various other provisions of the US Constitution. So they'll look at it and say, for example, they'll look at a particular controversy, let's say it's involving, um, a criminal case in which uh, 
a litigant was convicted of a crime under a particular statute. The Supreme Court, if it takes up that case, will decide if there were constitutional defects, such as was the individual who was arrested and convicted of a crime, was there racial motivation? Did, was the judgment of the court decided based upon prohibited discrimination against a particular class of people by religion or by ethnicity or by skin color? And the court can say, yes, we think it was, and therefore we're not only changing the result in this particular case, but we are giving fair notice that the statute under which the individual was convicted, and maybe murder is not the best case, um, but the statute that was used as the basis for the conviction was not constitutional. <clears throat> now, what happens there is we are basically saying that the court more or less has vetoes, a veto, the last veto right. They get the last word on whether or not a particular statute which was used for the basis for some earlier prosecution. Let's say it's an environmental issue. <clears throat> there's environmental law and perhaps there's a regulation enforcing the law that was put out and promulgated by the uh, EPA concerning clean water and an individual is found to have violated uh, that law and subject to sanctions, monetary and otherwise. If the Supreme Court looks at the statute and the regulations under which the, um, which enforced this particular statutory provision and says, we think the EPA doesn't have authority to regulate that particular environmental issue, or we think that the statute did not mean to delegate to the EPA the ability to enforce that specific environmental law. So we're declaring, uh, we're reversing judgment in a particular case, and we're declaring that the statute regulation, one or both, are unconstitutional. In that event, what is supposed to happen and what generally does happen is the statute is either in whole or in part overturned in effect by the Supreme Court decision or Congress or the EPA or both have the ability to attempt to revise the particular statutory or regulatory provision and make it constitutional and hope that if a case comes back to the Supreme Court involving that amended statute of regulation that the Supreme Court will dis not decide it uh, against them. They'll say, yes, this, this is a constitutional uh, provision and it can be enforced. Now, of course, all this presumes that everything works in an orderly way. Uh, case comes to the Supreme Court. There's a particular statute in question. Supreme Court makes a decision that some provision is unconstitutional. Congress diligently goes ahead and revises the statute and then the EPA changes its regulations and so on and so forth. And then a similar case, not the same case, but a similar case comes back to the Supreme Court and they say, they declare that the revised provision works. Doesn't 
actually work that way very often in practice because of one very simple principle, and that is the Supreme Court gets to choose what cases it hears. And while there are thousands of what's called petitions for certiorari, which is a Latin term, which basically means that you can't get to the Supreme Court with a case unless you file a petition asking the Supreme Court to decide your particular case and the justices agree to hear the case. And it's fair to say that out of the thousands of cases that are filed every year with the Supreme Court, a tiny number of cases are actually accepted for a full oral argument and a hearing somewhere in the neighborhood of 60 to 100, and it's varied from time to time. Um, most recently, the court didn't show a lot of productivity in terms of cases it actually heard for oral argument, and it was closer to 60 than it was to 80 or to 100. So you can see, again, it's a process that it doesn't work like an assembly line. Supreme Court has um, nine justices, and it has uh, each justice has their own law clerks that help to sift through the uh, petitions to get a case into the Supreme Court. Decisions are made about which cases would seemingly be fit for um, acceptance for oral argument. It takes uh, four justices to um, provide uh, their views as to whether a case is worthy, and then ultimately, if the remaining justices agree, then the case is brought up for a trial. It's not really a trial, it's an appellate style hearing. There are no witnesses, only the lawyers for uh, each, each side, um, the, uh, what were the plaintiff and defendant in a prior case, but are basically appellants and appellees. And then the case is heard and then the Supreme Court writes up the decision ultimately at the end of uh, or before the end of their term. That's typically the way it works. So with this in mind, again, it's fair to say that the Supreme Court has, because of this doctrine of judicial review, because they're enforcing the supreme law of the land, which is the constitution itself, because justices are appointed for life, and because the presidents most often appoint and hand over to the Senate picks of justices. And in the last several decades, if not more, and actually going back all the way to George Washington, they pick people that they think will adhere to or are close in temperament and their prior decisions to deciding cases along the lines that the president wants. Now, the president doesn't always get the final say, or is the actually put it more directly, president's nominees are not always approved. And to the extent that uh, a democratic president proposes a justice for the Supreme Court, uh, Biden got that opportunity recently in his term and to replace a judge who had retired from the bench. And ultimately his nominee was successful 
in being appointed to the bench, but not by a large number of, of senators. There's 100 senators, so there was a few more than half, essentially, that voted in favor of that particular justice uh, in during the, the prior Trump administration. As I mentioned, there were three justices that Trump picked. And even though, again, the Republicans controlled uh, the majority of the Senate, those justices got uh, a larger proportion in some cases, but not unanimous. In the past, many Supreme Court justices, regardless of political affiliation and regardless of which party held the Senate, were approved by either unanimity or near unanimity. And it's again been in the last couple of decades where things have become much more polarized and the senators tend to vote uh, along party lines strictly on these nominees. Um, the situation has been much different. <clears throat> so that rightward shift and that polarization has manifested itself in the way these cases the ones in particular that are considered uh, watershed cases or cases that have overturned uh, long-term precedent. It, it has some, it doesn't take, you know, a, a computer essentially to figure out that the makeup of the Supreme Court is a huge factor in terms of partisanship and so on and so forth in deciding which way a case will go. Now, I'm not suggesting that a Republican judge justice that's appointed to the Supreme Court is always going to follow, you know, what the majority view is of a particular party that happens to be the same party as the president and the party that holds the majority of the Senate seats. <clears throat> but there is a significant correlation. And we know that it's not just the president and the Senate that have a say in what justices come to the Supreme Court. In earlier times and more aggressively in the current times, there is a lot of lobbying that is done, which is a strange thing in a way. Lobbying, you know, you usually think of as lobbying the Congress who is making the laws and you have environmentalists and oil companies, you have uh, coal companies and again, environmentalists, or you have pro-gun rights and, and anti-gun rights that make their feelings known by going to Congress or meeting with Congress folk and trying to both educate them, but also to uh, try to influence like new legislation or amending legislation or repealing legislation. You don't typically think of that activity as being involved in the judicial process because the justices are looked at as differently. They're looked at as, even though they have partisan stripes going in typically, and even though in many cases, um, or some cases, a, a justice may surprise you uh, justice might have been affiliated with the Republican Party before he or she got to the bench and then all of a sudden 
he's in a different posture or she's in a different posture and decides cases that are considered to be more liberal. But generally speaking, um, the way justices are selected and the way these lobbying groups, which are typically super PACs and nonprofit entities, they get together and they, I mean, it's, it's, it's now understood that many of them, and I'll mention a couple in passing here, that they actually submit the names of, of preferred nominees to the Supreme Court. So it's not just the president who gets his staff or gets uh, assistance in creating his or her own list. In this case, it's his obviously list of preferred candidates and then winnowing it down and then submitting the preferred choice to, to the Senate, <clears throat> these groups. So let's talk about these groups. Who am I talking about? Well, I think most people have heard of the Federalist Society. And the Federalist Society is, you know, not some sinister group per se, but it is a group that has an agenda and it's uh, considered to be a very partisan, right-wing, Republican-centered um, point of view about the laws and the laws that they prefer to see upheld and cases which they would prefer to see uh, given to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court decide favorably according to their agenda. So what agendas are we talking about? The same thing I started the program with. It could be anything from reproductive rights to more gun regulation or less gun regulation. It could be some more pro-business view of a particular group. For example, uh, one of the earlier Supreme Court cases, but still very influential was Citizens United, which gave to corporations the power to be treated as an individual for purposes of making uh, donations or contributions to political parties, as long as they observed certain norms. Um, but it's on a whole, on, on every issue you can possibly think of, education and so on and so forth. Well, the Federalist Society ascribes it uh, to a lot of uh, philosophically right-wing principles. They, they are pro-life, which translates into anti-abortion. They are big uh, protectors and proponents of the Second Amendment, which means today, um, at least among most Republicans, protecting the, the right to own and have a gun, uh, lower restrictions in terms of regulations, whether it would pertain to banning certain types of weapons, assault rifles, uh, weapons that have large magazines to uh, more stringent requirements in terms of registration, who can have a gun, who cannot have a gun, so on and so forth. So uh, the Federal Society uh, did in fact provide lists of judicial, uh, mostly former justices or justices that were serving on the benches in other courts, either state or federal court, and a list or lists were provided to in the prior um, presidency of, of ex-president Trump were provided to him 
with the idea of these are who we would like to see. These are the people we would like to see appointed, and not just to the Supreme Court, but also uh, the president has the power to make uh, appointments subject to Senate approval for all the federal courts, the courts of appeal and district courts. These are the people we would like to see elevated to those particular positions. And on the one hand, we say, well, isn't this sort of what should happen in a democratic society, the Federalist Society, the Heritage Society? There's other lobbying groups that tend to lobby for more left-leaning justices. Uh, the ADA has traditionally had, uh, is sometimes thought of as being more centrist. Um, the ADA is the American Bar Association. It's made up of hundreds, thousands of lawyers across the country. And not all lawyers are part of the Republican Party or conservative, but they're a more mainstream type of uh, organization. They might make uh, their own list or provide money to support uh, politicking, so to speak, for particular justices. And there, there's other groups, again, both on the left and the right. <clears throat> but it is, I think, without question, the federal society has had the most influence on the recent nominees to the Supreme Court that occurred during the Trump administration and the nominees to other federal benches that um, Trump appointed and that were ultimately confirmed by the Senate. So the question is, is, or one question that arises is, is this a fair process? I mean, shouldn't, shouldn't justices who are deciding cases who don't run for office every two years or every six years, shouldn't they be above the fray? Shouldn't they come in and basically uh, try to put aside, you know, their philosophical viewpoint, which may have been um, created over a number of years or representing certain kinds of clients? Shouldn't they just be deciding the law? Do they, ha do they have to, you know, take a, a particular viewpoint that is consistent with the president's party or the party that is controlling the, the Senate that ultimately approves of the president's um, nominees. And if we don't like the result, or if we think that what has happened in terms of the most recent decisions by the Supreme Court, which indeed have overturned some longstanding precedent, then what are we prepared to do to change it? And what can be done to change it? Well, as it turns out, there is some room to make modifications in the way in which judges get onto the Supreme Court and the number of judges that are on the Supreme Court. And there's all kinds of uh, papers that have been written by various groups, even one that was commissioned by President Biden, who were charged with looking at ways in which supposedly the court could be more fair. Because I think it's fair to say that in recent times, the Supreme Court, you know, was, was always subject to criticism. But there are a number of lawyers, judges, 
people from both parties, but many people have suggested that the Supreme Court has lost its legitimacy. In other words, it's not just a question of deciding, you know, being like for or against a particular decision, but concerns about, again, what cases come up to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court decides how the court renders a decision, the extent to which um, courts are bending over backwards by some people's thoughts to um, reach a particular decision, regardless of many of the facts that are underlying the case and what the law has been and as interpreted by prior courts. And the Supreme Court has been uh, subject to a lot of, as I said, criticism, not just of the decisions, but is it acting legitimacy? Well, what has fed into that besides the decisions that have been rendered themselves and the way in which justices are selected <clears throat> as influenced by groups like the Federal Society and the Heritage and, and in some cases in prior administrations by uh, more liberal and um, uh, democratic, supposedly democratic uh, proponents. What has recently come to a head and has generated a lot of concern and controversy is the revelation to some people that the Supreme Court not only has justices with particular points of view, but that the justices by the way in which they speak out uh, about their opinions on particular cases or cases that have been decided in the past, the way they have appeared in, with groups or in groups as speakers with uh, organizations that have very partisan agendas like CPAC and the like, that these judges are not behaving under the tenets that are usually ascribed to lawyers. What am I talking about here? Lawyers are bound in their actions to be, to be subject to or to be guided by ethical principles. And they're not just um, ethics in general in the air. Uh, lawyers in order to retain their licenses are required to not have conflicts of interest in representing individuals. Um, they're responsible for making sure that they are uh, deciding fairly in terms of the way they handle their cases, the way they handle money that's entrusted to them and so on and so forth. Uh, most justices are also lawyers. And so in a way they're subject to those as well. But while there are very specific codes of ethics applicable to members of Congress and folks that serve in those capacities in the state legislatures and the lower courts have codes of ethics, the Supreme Court is not bound by any specific code of ethics. They have more of a laissez-faire uh, policy, which they can either abide by the codes of ethics, because there are some codes of ethics that are model codes of ethics, or they can decide that they're not applicable. 
Well, this has come up in the case most um, significantly of Clarence Thomas, who has been on the court for a long, uh, large number of years, who is generally regarded as being a advocate, uh, not an advocate, but being influenced by um, a lot of the right-wing agenda that's been advocated by the Republican Party. And he's had, he sat for a case in which uh, an issue was before the court that involved uh, Trump's uh, challenging the election and uh, making allegations that the election was stolen, so on and so forth. Well, it turns out that uh, Clarence Thomas's wife, generally known as Ginny Thomas, um, is uh, a person who has exerted, has had great influence and exerted influence uh, by representing or being an advocate for or helping to organize efforts uh, against uh, the current president. Uh, she apparently said she showed up at the January 6th speech that preceded the uh, insurrection and the siege to the, to the Capitol, but said she left before any of that happened. She had just been alleged, uh, I don't think it's been definitively established, but I'm not sure she denies it, that she called uh, governors and representatives and other politicians to uh, try to exert effort to get them to uh, object to the election that elected uh, Joe Biden as the president and that she did that in the same spirit as a lot of uh, Trump acolytes and uh, counsel and so on and so forth. And that because of that significant role, because she wields a lot of power individually just by her background education, but also because she in fact is married to a Supreme Court justice, an influential Supreme Court justice. There were many that felt that uh, Justice Thomas should at least have recused himself from hear, or hearing a case which there, in which there were allegations about election fraud and so on and so forth. And he did not. And uh, my understanding is that he makes no particular apologies for that, except for the denial that anything that his wife may have been involved in was not at all influential in his decision, even though he was the lone dissenter in that particular case, even the other conservative judges had uh, decided um, without uh, Clarence Thomas's vote to uh, vote against um, a uh, allegation that the election, there, there was election fraud in one state or another. So that, that you know, basically has uh, raised again, the issue of the legitimacy of the Supreme Court and you know, what other steps could be taken? Could, could Clarence Thomas be impeached? Well, justices can be impeached just like any other state or federal official. But as we know, uh, first of all, impeachment has been used in a, a few cases in, in terms of presidents. It's been used often, but not that often in cases of state officials. But there has never been a Supreme Court justice who was uh, forced to step down from the bench uh, through any kind of impeachment process. And so without at least a strong code of ethics, 
um, in which certain activity could be critiqued or sanctioned or criticized or even punished, and this is the case that we have with the Supreme Court, there's no strong likelihood that that remedy, um, remedy that that's, that way of dealing with some of the uh, more controversial aspects of judges' behavior is probably not going to make any kind of difference. So again, let me return to the issue of <clears throat> with all this power that the Supreme Court has and with the fact that they have uh, life tenure and the fact that it takes um, a 6-3, excuse me, they, there's a 6-3 majority on the Supreme Court that is um, to, the, to the right of center, so to speak. What other possibilities are there? Well, there is at least some basis um, given what is set forth in the constitution to believe that judges and justices, justices is what we call the judges who sit on the Supreme Court, that while those who are acting as a federal judge or justice in the Supreme Court may have life tenure, but not necessarily life tenure on the Supreme Court itself meaning in effect that Congress could enact a law that says that a Supreme Court justice can only serve on the Supreme Court bench for a stated number of years, like two or three years. And then after that, the justice has to uh, go to another federal bench, Court of Appeals or a district court to serve out uh, some portion or perhaps even the remainder of his or her term. Obviously that sounds like it's a bit of a loophole and it is, but it is also a true fact that the constitution could have been explicit in saying that the Supreme Court justices in particular had life tenure on the Supreme Court if that's what was intended since they had not done that then one way again of having um, some diversity and different opinions and not having a particular group with a particular phil philosophical bent on the Supreme Court would be to try to see if that particular process would be constitutional and then would it be effective. Another thing that is available which might solve some of the problems is the Supreme Court has a very broad a mandate in terms of jurisdiction of what cases they can hear. And none of that is cast in stone, meaning it's not in the Constitution itself. It's in enabling laws, uh, to, which dictate you know, what the parameters are of, of jurisdiction. Uh, a Congress could uh, cut back on some of the cases that the Supreme Court could hear. Uh, at least by their appellate jurisdiction. And that might be, you know, an, a way again of, of, of checking the Supreme Court in some respects. Uh, another possibility, which has gotten a lot of attention, but it's also very controversial, although it does seem to be a constitutional, there's nothing in the Constitution itself that says that the Supreme Court must be 
uh, made up of only nine justices. It has been other than that in earlier periods of government of the United States, um, six uh, justices at one time, and maybe even fewer than that. So one way of reordering the philosophical bent would be to have an expanded court instead of nine, you know, have 13 or 15 or 20 or 21, perhaps an, even, an odd number obviously would avoid um, uh, deadlock in most instances. Although there has been deadlock on the Supreme Court when a vacancy hasn't been filled or, or some judge is not able to preside in a particular case. Now, uh, again, it appears that this has been, uh, that this is constitutional. Uh, FDR tried to, uh, and they use the term pack the court. I'm not sure that's, you know, exa exactly accurate, but to put additional parties on the Supreme Court. And there's reasons beyond changing the makeup of the court for doing this. As I mentioned, the Supreme Court has a relatively small caseload full of cases that they agree to hear. And that caseload has become in and of itself somewhat unmanageable. You're talking about uh, justices who, while they can have access to and depend upon their law clerks, are many are in their late 70s and 80s, and they stay on the Supreme Court because again, so far life and tenure has been interpreted as only applying to their tenure on the Supreme Court. So if you, you had an expanded court, you could have more justices uh, helping with that workload. You could even divide up cases and not have, you know, have this group of judges or justices in this case decide certain cases and allocate other decisions to the other justices. I mean, there's even, you know, folks who have said, well, you know what? Supreme Court doesn't have an army. They don't have the power to enforce their particular cases. They write an opinion. We can just disobey what the Supreme Court does or says, and then leave it up to uh, federal and state government to decide whether they are going to uh, oppose that action because the Supreme Court has dictated otherwise by their decisions. That's a pretty radical point of view and probably not um, the most uh, practical way of dealing with it, but I think it's more being proposed because of, again, many people's concerns that some of the decisions in abortion and in gun rights and gun regulation and in the extension of, uh, some people would say the extension of freedom of religion, other people would say, uh, piercing the wall that's supposed to exist between uh, the state and religion because of the controversies associated with those cases, you know, something has to be done to give a message to the Supreme Court that they can't act in an arbitrary fashion, they can't act with impunity, they can't uh, overturn uh, decades-old cases that um, people have, have um, modified lifestyle based upon those decisions. I mean, that's a lot of what has fueled, uh, again, the controversy. So again, I don't like to keep going back to just the abortion case, but I think 
one thing we seem to have learned that even though the Supreme Court is the supreme tribunal and it has the power to enforce the constitution as the supreme law of the land, that there are many types of activities and players and responses to many Supreme Court decisions that are not necessarily um, anticipated or not necessarily anticipated to simply uh, fall into place once the court renders its decision. Uh, and again, we've had, we've had states, as I said, take various positions on how to counteract the potential effect of Dobbs. And then we have responses uh, to those cases where you know, there's a case that has uh, been in, in the courts and to this point hasn't been decided as to whether uh, medication that in, helps to, is used frequently or prescribed to induce an abortion, whether uh, that drug, which was approved by the FDA years and years ago, should be uh, taken off the market. And the principle that's being used there is, is the proponents of that are saying the FDA should never approve the drug to begin with. It's, it's not safe, it's dangerous. Didn't, the FDA didn't adhere to its own guidelines. Most people don't take that as a serious, um, a serious uh, claim. It's fairly clear that the impetus for that was if people are go not going to be able to get a surgical uh, solution uh, to the, or dealing with abortion and the reproductive rights, that we cannot permit them to also be able to induce the, an abortion and to take matters into their own hands with a pill. And, and again, the potential effect of a decision like that by one judge or justices in various states um, might, would potentially go further than to say, you can't sell that particular drug in a particular state, but if you take the position that the drug should not have been uh, approved by the FDA, it would affect everybody, every state, every individual, every doctor, every citizen. And I think we're seeing again with uh, the concern and the flurry of uh, violence with guns. Some people use the phrase mass murder, but just the use of guns. And at the same time, uh, state laws tightening or state laws being resistant to various kinds of gun regulation. The Supreme Court struck down a New York law uh, and prescribed various restrictions in terms of who could carry a concealed weapon. And that's been repeated in a number of, of other states that those are changing, they change not just precedent, but they change behavior. They change, they have a fundamental effect on the people that have to live under those rules. There are obviously a lot of folks that are protective of the right to own a gun. And it wasn't always, the Second Amendment was, was not always interpreted in that way. There was a time in which the entire provision of the Second Amendment, which started with the words, a well-regulated militia, and then ended with a, a, a sentence that talked about the right to carry, carry guns. But 
you know, there was a time in which those two phrases were read together to suggest that they were only talking about guns that would be used in a state militia or something akin to that, like the National Guard. They weren't talking about every Tom, Dick, and Harry being able to have a gun and carry a gun and carry a concealed weapon, much less carry a, a gun modeled after a combat weapon uh, like an M16, which then translates into uh, some other some other weapon with the initials in AK or AR or whatever it is. So the Supreme Court, because it has not completely unchecked powers, but largely unchecked powers, is in a position to make decisions that we all have to live under for decades. And there is a term in terms of settled law called stare decisis, another Latin phrase, but essentially it means uh, in co common English, let the decision stand. Now, does that mean that even a wrongly decided decision that has existed for a number of years without being um, controverted should be left to stand? I don't think anybody really believes that's the case, but it means something more than simply, well, this was another case, this is another time we have new justices, we're allowed to take a second look at it. Sometimes a second look is appropriate, but sometimes a second look is appropriate because circumstances have changed. There's vast changes in technology and social norms and so on and so forth. But I don't think anybody wants to have a system of laws as interpreted by a supreme body that fluctuates merely because of the politics, policies, or propensities of the individuals serving as Supreme Court justices. We want to have those justices act in a way in which they're insulated from you know, every different uh, social issue that arises down the way, but not one that completely ignores the importance of long decided decisions where people's actions and their lifestyle and their belief in what freedom is applicable to them um, change again or be a subject to being overturned just because uh, we have a new group of just judges. Again, given all the things that we've talked about, how judges are appointed, the basis of judicial review, the ability to take powers away from states or give powers to states, those are important principles and fundamental to what we consider to be appropriate democracy in this country. So I could go on for a long time and talk about other issues of the Supreme Court. I'm happy to respond to comments, but this is uh, Mark Lieberman closing out the show for The World According to Mark, and I thank you for your attention.